Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. Just to get out ahead of it, God is very against child sacrifices, definitely frowned on sacrificing children. Several times in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, several of the books of the prophets, God does not have good things to say about sacrificing children. So then we have to ask ourselves, why does this story exist? Why do we have a story about Abraham, the father of our faith, being asked by God to sacrifice his child, Isaac, on an altar as an entirely burned offering? And it's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked it. Um, To get some perspective on this, we really need to go back to the very beginning. A few weeks ago, we read the whole first chapter of Genesis to learn what we could about God by looking at humanity's origin story. And as it turns out, God created humanity to thrive. But not just to thrive individually, God created humanity to thrive through relationships and caretaking of the earth and every inhabitant in it. God created humanity to tend to the earth, to form deep relationships and to be fruitful until the earth was full of faithful stewards and servants to this sacred and abundant garden. For good or bad, humanity was also given this gift of free will and with that free will came a kind of uncomfortable tension between God's intention for the world and our own personal intentions. That tension came to a particularly violent climax at the beginning of our story about Noah. Scripture tells us that Noah was literally the only person, the only person in the whole world committed to God's vision of the world, the only person. Literally everyone else in the story has been consumed with a violent competition uh, between one another and with creation itself. They destroy indiscriminately. So God makes a renewal of that first covenant with Noah. And he gives him all the tools and all the resources necessary to care for creation on an enormous boat and then to start over. And then he washes the, God washes the canvas clean. Not only the, excuse me, the only living creatures left are Noah and his family and a boatload of animals prepared to follow the original commandment given to them to be fruitful and multiply, filling all the corners of the earth. So after the water recedes away, the family gets out of the boat. Noah gets a little drunk on some wine that he made as his first project after he landed on shore and then strips down and passes out in his tent, unintentionally validating every stereotype about sailors. Then when he wakes up, he offers a series of curses and blessings to his sons. He blesses Shem, one son, with servants, and then curses Ham's descendants, starting with Canaan. Uh, He curses Ham's descendants to be servants to Shem. So he gives Shem some servants, and he makes Ham a servant. Now, I know that seems irrelevant to the story, but it isn't, I promise. Nine generations later, 
one of Shem's descendants named Terah had a son named Abram who would become Abraham. So get it, this blessing is following through nine generations. Shem was granted favor by Noah and granted favor by God. And over the course of 250, 300 years, we follow his descendants one generation at a time to get to Abraham, who receives this call to leave his family and start a new life, intentionally following God. That's the first lesson of many from Abraham. Sometimes our role is to just pass on the blessing of faithfulness to the next generation and trust that God is doing a good thing through us in that process. I doubt any of Abraham's or Abram's ancestors anticipated what would come, and I doubt Terah, Abraham's dad, would have been too excited to let his son and therefore free field hand leave with so many valuable resources, right? Perspective is everything. How do we live with grace while we hold different perspectives? So anyway, Abram left his family. He left his, his inheritance. He left his safety net. He left his place of comfort. He left some of his obligations, trusting that God would lead him to exactly the place that he was supposed to be. Abram, his wife Sarai, and their nephew Lot traveled through Canaan, hearing time and time again that God would give this land to Abram and Sarai to fill with descendants devoted to the covenant of faithfulness, of fruitfulness, and caretaking, which is the covenant established in the first moments of creation. Interesting, too, uh, the Canaanites were descendants of Ham, who were cursed to be Shem's servant. God is giving Ham's descendants, the Canaanites, to Abram, Shem's descendants. But all of that is essentially meaningless because Abram and Sarai, who are 85 years old and 75 years old respectively, had not had any children yet. So Sarai proposed that Abram try to have a child with her servant, Hagar, which Abraham goes along with. And they do have a child named Ishmael, which leads to exactly the kind of situation that you might expect. Sarai gets really mad. Hagar runs away with her son and Abram feels caught in the middle. And in the midst of all that, tension and awkward family drama around a sort of love triangle, God grants a blessing on Ishmael that he will be the ancestor to a great many nations as well. It's a wild story. So then 13 years later, God comes back to Abram and repeats the same claim. Abraham will be the ancestor to many nations. And with this promise, his name is even changed from Abram to Abraham. And we have a whole song about it. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. <laughs> Sarah's name is also changed from Sarai to Sarah, and she's promised to be the bearer of nations, and that many kings would come from her, to which the 99-year-old Abraham and the 89-year-old Sarah laughed. So then God again promises them a son and then tells them that they will name this son Isaac, which translates to laughter. 
Isaac comes with specific promises. When his birth is foretold, God tells Abraham that he will be the ancestor to 12 tribal leaders and a great unified nation. You see, now we're starting to talk about Israel. There's a lot of promise and expectation wrapped up in Isaac. God has promised a lot through this child. Tribes, leaders, nations, kings, all promised through the only child born to Sarah in her 90th year of life. Everything is stacked on this one particular child. Sarah shouldn't be able to have a child when she does, but somehow it happens. But the likelihood of it happening again is even more absurd. This child is it. Isaac will bear this promise from God or no one will. And it's with that kind of weight, that kind of expectation, that kind of anticipation that God's voice calls out to Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as an entirely burned offering there on one of the mountains that I will show you. Wow. Then they travel. These two men and some servants, they travel three days together. They split wood together. They prepared the altar together. Even as Abraham was piling wood onto Isaac's back, his son asked him, where is the lamb for offering? And Abraham's response, which must have been full of a kind of weight and grief that Isaac could not understand, Abraham says, God will see. Which is an interesting response. Depending on your translation of scripture, it either says God will see to it, or God will provide, or God will see. God will see is interesting because it might give us a clue into this horrific moment. God is consistent. God, consistently through the Bible, God is consistent. And throughout the Bible, it says repeatedly, child sacrifice is bad. The evil nations, the enemies of God, sacrifice children. And still, Scripture tells us that God tested Abraham by asking for his son's life. So we've got to wrestle with that. Now, to be fair, our sensibilities have changed over these last generations. A story about a parent making any kind of sacrifice like this is just plain horrific by our standards, and I am not interested in justifying this moment in any way whatsoever. But sacrifices like this were fairly common in the time that these passages were written. There's even some evidence that child sacrifice might have even been practiced by some sects within the lineage of our Abrahamic tradition, and that this text may have been a challenge against that practice. So anyway, the story isn't meant to be read with 21st century eyes. This story is about 
sacrifice, personal sacrifice, a great sacrifice, and trust. In Isaac, Abraham has been given everything that he ever wanted. If you read back through Genesis up to this point, every time Abraham spoke with God, he asks about this promise of many nations. Every time he moves through a city or a region or an area, there's the illusion, the, the, the questions about how numerous Abraham's descendants will be. And every time Abraham asks about it, and God consistently declares to him that it will come. The problem is, with a promise of many nations, also comes a promise of much power. And when a numerous expanse of humanity grabbed a hold of that kind of power nine or ten generations earlier, the world became entirely corrupted by violence, greed, hatred not the caretaking God had intended. And so God had to start over from the beginning, placing animals and birds and fish and people back onto the blank canvas of the earth with a new covenant to care for and to fill all of this space. And so God tested this covenant. Looking into Abraham's eyes, God looked and wondered if it could be different this time. Can God share this power of fruitfulness, creativity, passion, and trust with this particular lineage, or will God need to start over again? So Abraham, by some miracle, understood what was being asked of him. He didn't fight and advocate, which he has done in the past. He didn't flee from this discomfort, which he had done in other places. He didn't delay or scheme. He demonstrated trust that God would not back out of God's own promise. The details of this experience are difficult to navigate as 21st century readers because it's brutal and scary and troubling. But the message through this story is as relevant as it has ever been. Do you trust in God's promise? Do you trust that the worst thing is not the last thing? Are you willing to leave human hope and desire for more? Or even are you willing to leave old habits behind in order to live into new ones? Are you willing to let go of potential power or status or strength of reputation or even relationships if it means growing closer to the God who made you? The story is really intense. It's a lot to take in, but fundamentally, it is a story about trust. Abraham needed to learn to trust that God always follows through on promises, and God needed to learn 
to trust that Abraham would pass on the kinds of lessons that enable creation to thrive. Selflessness, humility, and trust. And just like Shem passed on through each generation to Abram, this idea of faithfulness, we too get to step in that generational line with a choice to pass on those lessons of faithfulness, generosity, grace, and trust to the next one along the way. Faithfulness today is the same that it was in the Garden of Eden, a willingness to trust God, to care for creation, and to cultivate fruitfulness. So my prayer is that we would all learn to walk this path together. And I hope that you will join me, wherever you may be. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org.